launching JJ Corey Irish Whiskey, Louise McGuan became the first modern whiskey bonder in Ireland in more than 50 years. The brand's first offering in America, the Hansen, is a blend of Irish grain whiskeys sourced from different distilleries and it clocks in at 92 proof. McGuan has the only all-female Irish whiskey company in all of Ireland. Louise will discuss the challenges she has overcome as a female in the whiskey industry and how she's turned her family farm into a whiskey phenomenon. everyone. Welcome back to Lady Empire. I have such a phenomenal guest here with me today. Louise, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's great to be in it. Amazing. So first off, I just want you to tell us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing and if this sort of affected your career path at all. Yeah, I grew up in rural Ireland um, in the kind of 70s, 80s, early 90s kind of thing. That'd be my generation. I'm a, generation, I'm a Gen Xer. And rural Ireland back then was really a different planet, to be honest with you. You know, um, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't impoverished, but nobody had anything. You know, we didn't have, I think we had one TV channel and we didn't have supermarkets and it's a very different place than, than Ireland is now. So it was a very kind of simple, lovely um, country childhood um, that we all had back then. You know, families were still large. My, my immediate family wasn't in particular, but I had hundreds of cousins all around me. Uh, I grew up in a village of 300 people total. And, you know, life kind of centered around, certainly at that time, like the church and... Um, local kind of sports and community kind of events. So, you know, that phrase, it takes a village to, to raise a child, like legitimately that's kind of how I was raised. You know, I would spend weeks at a time at my aunt's and uncle's house, like two doors down kind of thing. You would kind of lend out your children to, to kind of hang out at other people's places. So it was, I was probably the last generation in Ireland that had an upbringing like that. You know, it's, it's very modernized now and it's not dissimilar really to a, to a child, you know, a child would be today in America really. But back then, um, Ireland was, you know, very, just very old school. You know, it hadn't really joined the EU yet. So that meant I kind of had to grow up very quickly. You know, we grew up on a farm and people back then didn't coddle their kids at all. You know, you... It's that old school upbringing of you, you were kind of expected to have a huge amount of common sense really, really, really early on. And you were helping on the farm and you were, you know, helping around the house and, and, and that sort of thing. So it instilled in me definitely um, a really kind of natural work ethic, you know, very, a very natural one. Because when you when you see everybody around you working incredibly hard um, and, and taking, taking it as a virtue and being proud of it, you know, it becomes something that that you that's really kind of ingrained in who you are and what you do, and that has definitely stayed with me and carried with me throughout my entire career. You know, I enjoy work, and I enjoy the labor of it and and the accomplishments. And I take great kind of pride and identity in it. Um, 
So that was definitely something that kind of carried through. And then, uh, uh, you know, resilience as well would be a huge kind of piece as well that, that would have, you know, brought me through my childhood. You know, we were very much kind of left to our own devices. And um, if you fell down, you just got back up. You know, that was it. That was, there was no more talk of it. So um, I, I definitely have, you know, and I've built my resilience over the years. You know, you have to, but but certainly in life, I think it was certainly my childhood that would have would have kind of instilled that that in me. And then lastly, I'd say a really kind of hardcore sense of community. You know, um, I grew up in a community, and the childhood that I had meant that you depended on your neighbors for everything. You know, uh, you know, it, it was kind of on on a, on a small farm in Ireland. If, if a cow is having a calf at four in the morning, you're calling your neighbor, you know, and there's a problem kind of thing. So that sort of sense of community, you don't, I've lived in a lot of urban areas and you don't really see that anymore, but it, it, it has manifested itself in modern times in kind of different ways. And um, you might not be calling on your neighbor down the road, but you, but, you know, within the drinks industry, certainly that sense of community is really prevalent and you can call up somebody that you haven't seen in 10 years and ask them for a hand and they'll give it to you kind of thing. Um, and I want to be a positive member of any community kind of I'm a part of and I'm a believer in participating in community as well. So those three things really, um, you know, from a, from a small rural Ireland, you know, background, childhood, I, I think those are the kind of key, key things I've taken through. That's amazing. And so have you lived in Ireland your whole life then, or have you done a little bit of hopping around, um, you know, especially during your time before JJ Corey? So I wanted to get out like immediately, you know, back, back then uh, and for good reason. Right. So, so back then, again, I, I was the last generation to do this. Immigration in Ireland is very normalized. You know, I have cousins all over the world and all over America Two of my aunts before me emigrated to America. Like, um, it's a very normal thing to kind of just up and leave in Ireland. It's, it's been going on for hundreds of years. So I always kind of knew that I, I probably wanted to find my future outside of Ireland because there wouldn't have been a, few, a lot really on offer for me in Ireland, to be, to be honest, at that, at that time. So um, I hadn't done any travel or anything, but I elected to go to, to university in the UK, in the United Kingdom. And believe it or not, university was free back then. You could kind of just go anywhere and you didn't have to pay for it, which was incredible. So off I went to England for, for um, university. I graduated and I ended up immigrating immediately to the United States. I graduated on a Friday night and I was at an office working in a high rise in the, in the Prudential Center in Boston on Monday, basically. And that was the very beginning of my kind of um, working life. I always knew I wanted a career, you know, not a job. Like from, from very, very kind of early on. I, honestly, honestly, and this is a funny thing, probably the most, one of the most influential pop culture things um, in my childhood. We were allowed to watch two, two, two TV shows a, a, a week at my boarding school that I went to. And Murphy Brown was one of them. And, and the other one was like Top of the Pops, this music thing. And honestly, that woman half raised me, I think, and that whole idea of like getting out and forging a career. So I went off to America. I was in Boston, New York, and, I, and that's where I started really straight out of college, almost my career in the drinks industry. You know, I got into it about two years out of college in New York and I never really left it. And then I went on a global track. You know, I was working for very big multinational drinks companies. I started off working for LVMH, which is Moet Hennessy, Louis Vuitton. 
and I worked for Champagne Vaufly Co., which is one of the amazing champagne brands. And um, I did that for a few years in New York, but working nationally. And then they transferred me to, to France to work in the global office. And I lived there for a couple of years between Paris and Rennes, where champagne is made. And then I got transferred to back to New York. And then I got transferred over to London with a different company and then on to Singapore. And, you know, I would, I would still be being transferred around the world because that's what those businesses do. They, you know, they incubate you and then they want to take your skill set to different countries and deploy it kind of thing. That's how the multinational drinks industry really works. And if you take yourself off that uh, track, you're kind of useless to them in, in reality. Like they need you to have a trailing spouse and they need you to kind of go to Thailand for a few years and, and Boston for a couple of years, et cetera, et cetera. So I elected to kind of come off that track because I was living in Singapore and my husband was living in London. And we, we spent two years of our marriage like that, the first two years of our marriage and something kind of had to give. So I quit my job, um, not particularly dramatically or anything. I just said, I got to go. And I and deal with my husband. And I said, look, I will move back to Europe slash Ireland if um, I can start my own business. That's the caveat because I enjoyed the moving around. So that's what I did. Amazing. And I now want to talk about your own business and your company that you have started, JJ Corey Irish Whiskey. Um, so tell us about how it got started and why it got started. You know, give us that background story. Yeah, so it, it was um, it was really, uh, there was a, a good chunk of luck in there, I think. I knew I wanted to start an Irish whiskey business, right? So I'd spent all these years in multinational drinks corporations. And when you're in those kind of roles, like I was quite, I was fairly senior, you know, you, you get to see what's going on in the world in terms of trends and things like that. And I could see that Irish whiskey was starting to move, you know, and, and it, it had been in the doldrums for about a hundred years. Um, and suddenly it was starting to become relevant again as a category. Uh, and it was starting to become something that people were turning to um, when, when it came to whiskey. And I also had spent a lot of time in the U.S., of course, and had seen the craft distillation movement happen in the U.S. You know, you guys have, I think, I want to say 2,100 craft distilleries now. And everywhere else in the world tends to be about 10, 15 years behind the U.S. when it comes to drinks trends, usually. And I could tell that that, I, that was the craft thing that happened, the craft boom that happened in the U.S. was going to happen in Ireland, but on a smaller scale. And I figured, right, I want to be a part of that. So I left Singapore um, and then it legitimately took me about four months or five months of, of corporate deprogramming to, to, to come out of that world. My phone, my Blackberry, I think, I don't know if I still have, probably still have Blackberry this time. Uh, I really miss Blackberries, by the way. They should bring them back. They're great. Um, uh, suddenly it stopped ringing. The emails stopped happening. And I didn't, I didn't, wasn't living my life by a calendar, like an online calendar all of a sudden. And it was like this kind of big empty space, this void, like nobody needed me anymore. And nobody, I didn't have to, any deadlines anymore. And, you know, nobody owned me anymore either to some degree, you know, because when you're in a, a global role in a corporation, you're working nearly 24 hours, you're on call all the time. So that was sh shocking. And, and I had to completely 
reassess my my own myself my identity you know I knew I wanted kind of knew I wanted to do this Irish whiskey thing and da, da, da. so then I avoided doing it for another few months because I was terrified I was too scared basically I was just too scared and I had all these investors kind of sniffing around telling me to do it and I was like oh, I don't want to do it so um then I kind of took a little a kind of a side role that I never should have taken like back in the drinks industry and I was like you know what I, I, I gotta just get just do what I set out to do here so um I came back to Ireland here in Ireland. We we're fortunate enough to have a house. I built a house here in Ireland a few years ago anyway on my family farm. My dad, you know, still farms this farm. It was supposed to be a holiday home. And um, I came back here and I just sort of took a couple of months to kind of start to investigate the history of whiskey making locally. We are located on the west coast of Ireland. Um, we're as far west as Europe and, as you can go. So if you look at a map of, of Europe and Ireland, we're on the very, very sort of tip um, of, of the west coast of Ireland essentially and all of Ireland had a massive distilling history for um, for several hundred years um, we had hundreds of distilleries we were you know we taught you guys in America how to make whiskey and we taught Canadians how to make whiskey you know we we who either ourselves or the Scottish invented it but like we used to be more prominent than Scotch whiskey was at one period in time and then in around the late 1800s, the Irish whiskey industry went through a very rapid period of decline over 50 years and the entire industry collapsed. So we went from having several hundred distilleries on the island to having only about two left in 1930. And all the ancillary businesses then around that collapsed as well. And, um, and then we entered a period of a monopoly or a duopoly of, of producers on the island. And just like a really bad time for Irish whiskey it was just bottled very cheap and 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 sold very cheap and, and that kind of thing uh, and then meanwhile scotch continued to rise bourbon continued to rise Japanese continued to rise and we just were like plodding along um so I was looking at the history of all those distilleries local to me there was several of them in the 1800s and I was going to buy this the, there's a few walls left of a very local distillery to me I was going to buy that and and then I discovered um, a local whiskey maker called J.J. Corey, who was born here in my parish of Courtlaire. And he, I, I, the reason that I discovered him was that there was a, a local antique dealer selling labels uh, on eBay, J.J. Corey labels on eBay. And they're the original labels from the 1890s. And uh, I called up the, the, the antique dealer. He was selling from them for five bucks a pot, basically, on, on eBay. And I and I went to go see him and I said, where did you well, who, what is this? Like, where did you get these labels? What is the scenario? And he in 1983 had been um, had a thriving antique business at the time and had been called in by a family uh, in my local town who had purchased J.J. Corey's shop. And J.J. Corey's daughter, Bridie, had taken over the shop after J.J. Corey's death in 1932. And she ran it. Uh, for all that time until she passed away and she didn't change anything so the shop interior looked exactly as it looked when it was founded in about 1893 so he dismantled the interior and he sold it to like a local historic park so we still can go and visit the shop and all the rest of it and then he found all of these labels these paper ephemera these um log books telegrams um wrapping paper all of this kind of historical archives of jj Corey and what he did in life and what he did is that he was a whiskey bonder and really simply what that means in the context of Irish whiskey is that he didn't have a big distillery and a big copper pot still uh, rather he had a shop front and he sold 
you know, he was a mercantile owner. He sold musical instruments and coffee and tea and, you know, wine and, and rum and all sorts of stuff. But when it came to his whiskey, what he would do is he would work with his local distilleries. Um, he would use kind of maybe if he had a, a spent rum cask in his, in, his, in his shop, he would send that off to a whiskey distillery to be filled up. And then he would custom blend whiskeys for his customers. So if you were like a wealthy family in the town in 1899, um, you had your own housekeeper blend, you know, that was specially made for you by Ginger Carr. And you probably went through a bottle or two a week kind of thing. And that was a very common um, business model in Ireland, like in, in all over Ireland at that time, because I was, there were so many whiskey distilleries and whiskey bonders were, had a lot of people to choose from to purchase their whiskey from. But it all died out in the, you know, as a result of the collapse of the Irish whiskey industry. You still see remnants of it. If you, if you ever come to Ireland and you drive around, you'll see the term whiskey bonder, usually written in gold letters on the windows of pubs or above shops and things like that. And that's kind of a hangover from those days. Um, but that completely died out. The last whiskey bonder in Ireland shot in the 1950s, Michelin Sons, and that was the end of it. So I thought that that was a really interesting approach as a business model. Um, I also, because of my time in, in corporate land, knew that if I had gone to an agency and asked them to come up with, make up a story about a brand or, and a guy and a his, and his, with some history, it had cost me like a quarter of a million dollars. And here was this like, just this wonderful heritage, this wonderful real story of a local guy I had all of this, I have all of this archival information that's just there and I've unearthed it. And I thought that's powerful. And, and my contribution to the Irish whiskey industry is going to be bringing, you know, that facet of the industry back in a really authentic way. Everybody else is doing grain to glass distilleries. That's wonderful. But I'm going to bring back uh, this lost part of the, the heritage of the industry and I'm going to do it in a way that's real and authentic and that's meaningful and, and that kind of pays homage to the past but kind of looks to the future. So, so that's really how it came about. And um, I, I, that was it. I just said, OK, we're doing that. Forget the grains of glass distillery. We're going to be whiskey bonders. That's phenomenal. And so you are the first female Irish whiskey bonder of modern day time, and you have built up this brand again, and you chose to have an all-female team to work alongside you. Why did you end up making that business decision? Well, well, first of all, I'm the first whiskey bonder, not even male, female. Like I, I, I did it first and there's a couple of guys who probably do it after me, but I'm the first whiskey bonder in general. And um, in terms of bringing women into the team, it's a very conscious decision and you have to be careful about, you know, like we, because you can't, there, there are laws in Europe that, that mean you can't hire discriminately. Um, but the reality of it is, is that I've been in this industry for a long time. And um, thankfully, we've seen things like Me Too come through and, and, and those kind of movements in recent years that have hopefully changed the industry for the better moving forward. But it's a predominantly male industry. There's no two ways about it. It always has been. It still is even now. Um, I work with there's there is there isn't another female Irish whiskey founder, for example, in, in the new world of Irish whiskey. There are now. You know, when I started the, in the industry, in Irish whiskey, there were three distilleries in the island. There are now 39. I remain the only female founder, which is a scandal, if you ask me. 
Um, but the reason is, is that it's a, it's a male dominated industry. It's hard, you know, you're, you're, it's, and it's, it's, um, it's just like any other industry that's really, you know, run by the patriarchy. It's the same issue. And let's not sugarcoat it. Like it's not pretty sometimes and, and you have to have a very thick skin around it. So my contribution in the long term is that I want to bring people into the industry and give them significant amounts of, of responsibility. And my hope is some of the women that pass through our company, because they will pass through, they should pass through, you know, they should go on to do wonderful things at some, at some point because they're young, um, is that they will feel the, the, the confident enough and they'll have learned enough in my company to, to go out and do it on their own and to feel as if they belong in the industry and as, as if they're an important, they're, 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 they've kicked ass at it. You know, we do really kick ass things all the time that nobody else does. And we're very kind of innovative and forward thinking and, and loud about what we do because uh, you have to be. And um, I want all the women that have come through my business to, to feel ownership of the industry because I certainly don't, didn't feel it when I, when I um, you know, joined the industry first, um, the, the drinks industry in general, I mean. So, so for me, that's really important. You know, I hope to be, I'm the exception to the rule right now in Irish whiskey, right? And I, I hope that the next generation you know, nobody cares what gender they are. People care that I'm a woman in the whiskey industry now. I, you know, and th that's just the time period we're in. Um, I, I want to get us to a point where it's completely irrelevant that you're a female whiskey bonder or a female whiskey founder. You know, we're not there yet, but hopefully um, I can help, I can make a contribution to get us there. Exactly. And, you know, I thought of this question as you were speaking too is, um, Obviously, in your business, you have to develop these strong relationships with distilleries to help build your brand and your business. Um, so how important is that? And, you know, have you seen any female-owned distilleries or any female partners really that, um, that you really connect with? Or is it super just male-dominated at this point? So the, the Irish whiskey industry maybe is a bit behind in this regard, okay? And, and this is kind of an important, you know, inflection point, right? Because um, it just is, you know, the, the industry has only come back to life in the last five years. So I only started five years ago. There was three distilleries and now there's 39. So it's very young, right? Um, so we're not great. We're not great yet. You know, there, there's me and then there's one other female partner in a, in a, in a whiskey business, a husband and wife team, and she's, she's awesome. And, and we... Um, we, we, we vibe very, very sort of well. Um, on, the, on the global scene, there's a lot more of us. And, and I'm fortunate enough that this is, mine is a global business. And back to that community thing that I was talking about earlier, you know, you're, the, the, communi the whiskey community, uh, the drinks industry community is, is, a, is really special, right? That's why I never really left the drinks industry. Because it's a fun business, right? You know, you're, you're, you're building relationships with people in bars late at night because it's part of your job when you're young in the, in the industry. You know, you're having fun experiences and things like that. But you're also working your backside off, you know? Um, and the, the, so the drinks industry community is great. And the whiskey community is even better. It's even more hardcore because it's really hard, really kind of really, really specialized. So there are some phenomenal women that... Um, you know, I collab I, I'm working on doing various different collaborations with and I'm learning from and, you know, and advising when I can in certainly in the Scotch whiskey industry and also in the bourbon community as well over in the U.S. So there's some incredible women who I've learned a lot from. I've, you know, and I, I um, 
I, I greatly sort of greatly admire. And they're all around my age because that's the, the generational piece. Um, so, so that is, you know, that's a lot better. Here in Ireland, not so much. Like I'm kind of it in Ireland, unfortunately, like, and, and, and so there's a lot of responsibility that, that sort of comes with that and I'm cool with it. But at least there is that sort of sisterhood around the world, you know, and they're brilliant because we all are in a male dominated industry and we all know the exact issue. We've all had the same conversations and the same stuff. So we probably connect on an even kind of deeper level. Um, but I'm very, very sort of grateful for that. And that, again, is evidence of the change that is occurring. Our generation of makers and founders are are going long term to change it for the next generation. You know, it is happening. It's just that we are at the tip of it at the moment. So how important is it for your company and your brand to really have a strong presence in the U.S.? Are you currently working on this expansion? Is it super important for your brand? And if it is, what are the major markets in the U.S.? So the U.S. is the world's uh, number one Irish whiskey market um, uh, by a country mile. I think it's about 70% of the global market. So you're nobody unless you're in the U.S., in my opinion. So um, I've always set the business up to be an export business. You know, we do nice little stuff domestically, but like we can't operate like a craft distillery, for example, in, in Massachusetts because, you know, there's only 4 million people on the entire island of Ireland. And there's probably only 10,000 people in my region. You know, it's tiny. So you have to export. Um, so we launched in, in the U.S. in 2018 as one of our first ever markets. And we, I spent a huge amount of time there. And um, I also deployed, deployed boots on the ground. You know, those are some of the women I hired. I hired them here in Ireland. And I sent them out to America to, to evangelize for us. So we've been hyper focused on the U.S. kind of from from sort of day one. The biggest markets are you know state by state because alcohol in the U.S. is it's just is you know regulated differently in every state. So you've got New York, Massachusetts, um, Illinois, uh, Texas, uh, California, um, Oregon, Maryland, and Florida. Those are the really those are the absolute must have kind of states, but they're behemoths. Um, so we don't have presence in all those yet, but we, we signed, a, a, a it was, it was a huge big deal actually for us. Like, um, we signed a big national importation and distribution deal there early this year with, uh, Trinity beverage group. And that now gives us a very big kind of player in the, in the scene. And that gives us nationwide reach that, so that essentially gives us an engine, you know, what, what I've always needed in the U S of boots on the ground and um, access to kind of new markets. So we're already starting to expand. You know, you, you can't go everywhere at once. You, you kind of have to go um, narrow and deep, really, with a brand like ours. It's very, it's very expensive whiskey. It's about $70, you know, as a starting point. So it's not mass market necessarily. And it also means then that when you're building the brand, like you don't want to, I don't want to be at Costco right now. Like it's not, that's just nothing for me, but I want to be in the fanciest um, hotel bar in your town, you know, or in your city. Like that's where I want to be. And I want to be in the, the, the fanciest wine, wine and spirits store where all the, the, the staff are really kind of knowledgeable and will talk you through your choices and things like that in the, in the early days. And our, and our new partner in the U S really understands that. Um, 
so yeah, so 2021, is that what the year is? Gosh, I <laughs> yes. know. <laughs> yeah, so it's a big year for us in the US, 2021. And, but it's also a challenge because I can't go there. I used to spend about six months of the year there, but I can't even go now. Um, so we have to kind of work around that and, and deploy boots on the ground in a different way. So tell us a little bit about what makes your brand different from these big names like Jameson and Bushmills that we're all very familiar with. How is your brand different from them? And I think the it's we're smaller, right? Okay, and smaller isn't always better, but in our case, um, you know, what I've done is is create something that Bushmills or Jameson didn't honestly didn't think of, you know, <laughs> like I used to work for the same, the company that makes Jamison and the company that makes Bushmills, right? I worked for both of those companies. And if I proposed this idea in a boardroom, I, I wouldn't have, it would have fallen at some hurdle. The legal would have shot it down. Procurement would have shot it down. Somebody would have shot it down somewhere. And um, we can be incredibly nimble, right? So we do, um, I source all of these, like this really, rare kind of stocks of whiskey right and we'll do bottlings of you know 60 bottles or 40 bottles for for people of like really rare interesting whiskey we can be very nimble so if we have um, a luxury hotel who wants their own particular it won't be white label but their own their own blend of jj Corey, we can we can make it for them you know we can have them come out to the farm and we can just sit here and open some casks and kind of make it happen um, everything that we do is really meticulous and hands-on. There's no, we don't have a factory. You know, we have um, uh, we have a rack house here on the farm where where I have casks maturing, and then we have a, a blending room in the back where we can, you know, we're very kind of hands-on and can sort of blend everything. Um, we're really meticulous as well about um, every aspect of the process, which big companies are as well, of course. But when you're making millions of something as opposed to tens of something, there's just a different level of care around it. There just fundamentally is. Um, and then also from a from a consumer standpoint, like legitimately people, I, I'm a consumer. I buy loads of stuff off of Instagram all the time particularly in lockdown and TikTok now I've started to buy things off TikTok as well which is a disaster and I want to know who's behind the what I'm buying you know it does it mean something is it meaningful is the per does the person care uh what's the story behind it is it adding something to to whatever industry they're in and and that's what we kind of have in spades, you know, like we, we, we you, every, I, I make, I physically make this whiskey, you know, I open the casks and I empty them into a tank. I have help now, but in the early days I, I, I didn't. And so there's a lot of kind of care and attention to detail and a very personal touch that really goes into our whiskeys. I think that is a bit different from the mass market brands. Um, so that's it. I think, you know, we're a very modern whiskey brand. We're not afraid to experiment. We do crazy things like tequila mezcal finishes and um, we'll do collaborations with really interesting designers and people. And um, and we're very we're not stuffy about how we how we talk about our whiskey. You know, if you if you want to put it in a cocktail or if you want to add ice or you want to have a whiskey sour there are still some whiskey businesses out there who frown on that. Like, you know, our approach is it's a social moment in your life. Knock yourself out and enjoy it kind of however you want. And we communicate that. And I, I think as well, lastly, I'm very open book on everything that we do. I'm hyper transparent. 
So we do things like literally, like we'll, we'll just prop up a camera in the blending room and do an entire blending on, on a Facebook Live or an Instagram Live. Nothing is hidden. There's no weird commercial processes or weird stuff that's going on. There's, there's um, really hyper-transparency. And big companies just can't do that. There's too much liability around it. And, and we can because we're, we're not, we don't have to hide. Yeah, so I think it's those things. Um, that's what really kind of sets us apart. And the whiskey's awesome. It wins awards constantly, left, right, and center. It beats those big boys all the time, which is amazing. So the quality is is one hundred percent there, uh, and it's on it's it's toe for toe with the big guys, and that's peer reviewed and, and awards led and all the rest of it. So we've proven the quality piece, but we have all of this other stuff around it that just makes us hopefully more appealing or, or as appealing uh, to consumers. Absolutely, and I want to build off of you mention mentioning the awards piece of it. You have won numerous awards, and I specifically want to narrow down on the 2020 Drinks International Top 10 Best Selling Irish Whiskey list that you were recently on, uh, which is an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations on that! And you know, I want to ask, what doors has this award opened for you? Um, and how do you really plan on moving up on this list each year? Yeah, so I nearly, that list just happened. I, I Somebody sent it to me on WhatsApp. And I nearly, I think I, I did actually cry. I'm pretty sure I did cry. I definitely cried. Or, you know, you know, that kind of dry crying. I definitely cried because that list, I have looked at that list my entire career. Every year you kind of look and it's always like huge company, huge company, you know, one to 10 is huge company, huge company, huge company, huge company. And um, we are still a very small business. And, and even, like I said, there's 39 whiskey companies now in Ireland. All of them are better funded than I am by a country mile, I would say. I would say. You know, we, we haven't raised a huge amount of capital because raising capital as a woman is fundamentally different. We all know that. That's like a proven fact. Um, but we're very smart about the capital that we do have. and We have to be really scrappy about it. So everybody else on that list is either a multinational business or has had a minimum of 35 to 40 million euros invested in them. And I know that because I obsessed over it and did the math and everything. And we are, you know, we are not even a tenth of that down the line in relation to that. So for us, it was an inordinate achievement. And it was one that reflects the distribution strategy that we have. You know, we, are, we go to top bars, we engage with top bartenders, and they're the people who are in those bars recommending our whiskey. Um, so a lot of people noticed us because of that, you know, and it's consumers aren't going to notice that list. It's a very industry kind of thing. It's an insider industry sort of a thing. But we got a couple of phone calls after it and raising capital moving forward. It'll, it'll help with that because it just shows how we can uh, punch, punch way, way, way above, above our weight. And then a lot of people were really shocked and, and didn't call me at all about it. <laughs> the industry. Um, but it's, it was, uh, uh, definitely a, honestly a career highlight for me that like it, I never in a million years thought we'd ever make that list so it, in terms of getting up that uh that it, it's it's doing more of the same but doing it harder and and unfortunately investing more in it. at that point like if you're going to stay on that list and continue on that road you have got to grow as a business and you've got to suddenly you know puff up your, your, your shoulders and, and start acting like you're on that list and, and, and keep going after it. So it's just being very, very focused on what we're doing because it's clearly working, but just doing it harder uh, and doing more of it. 
Amazing. And like I said, congratulations. That's such a phenomenal accomplishment. I'm looking forward to the years to come and watching you grow on that list and move up every year. So I just want to close out with a fun fact about you that I do with all of my guests, assuming that you do drink whiskey. um, What is your favorite meal to go with your whiskey? Um. Yeah, so I spend a lot of time in Asia, (laughs) working and and living in Asia. And I really fell in love with Singaporean food. I spent, when I lived in Singapore, I had a very beautiful apartment and it was a new apartment when I moved in. And when I moved out, the the interior of the oven was still like plastic wrapped. I had never, ever used the kitchen one time because the food is so good in Singapore. So, um, and I do this all the time when I'm out there. Like I'll have like a whiskey sour or a, or a, a whiskey highball just with soda in it. And uh, what's known as Singaporean chicken rice, which is an incredibly flavorful, spicy um, dish. And that's just my general flavor, uh, um, favorite meal in the world. And even more favorite when I'm having with it uh, with a whiskey. That's phenomenal. Oh, I'm just dreaming about that now. And I'm really looking forward to um, getting the opportunity to try your whiskey. I'm so excited. Like I had mentioned, my father owns a liquor store here. And so we are very excited to try it at our family dinner. It's going to be phenomenal. Oh, cool. I think we've sent you the Hanson. So we'll certainly send you a bottle of the Gale as well. And um, yeah, really, really, I'm excited to hear what you think. Absolutely. I can't wait. Um, so where can we find you on social media? Where can we follow what you're doing and see what you're working on? So across the social media platforms, we're at JJ Kari or at JJ Kari Whiskey. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're on all of them, including TikTok. We have some fun things that have gone viral a couple of times on TikTok. So definitely follow us there because we have a bit of fun on there. Um, and then I'm Louise McGuan at Louise McGuan on Instagram and at L McGuan on Twitter. Um, yeah. And I, that, that, that it's it definitely follow along lots of behind the scenes stuff. And, um, we're always pretty receptive to questions and things like that, but yeah, please give us a follow. We'd love that. Awesome. And I want to encourage everyone to follow these accounts. They do really cool behind the scenes work on Irish whiskey bonding, especially if you're interested in that. And, you know, just going back to how Louise spoke about how different her operation is versus those huge factories. It's so cool to see what goes on and what really goes into it. So check out those handles. Um, Louise, thank you so much for sharing and opening up your business to us. You are such an amazing businesswoman that I think we can all learn from. So thank you for sharing and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me and keep making this amazing podcast. Um, it's really inspirational listening to, the, to all of your episodes, some amazing people. So please don't stop. Keep it up. 